following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. I was going to start our, our time together this morning with a uh, short reflection on our family vacation that we just took. So uh, we just returned Thursday night from Montana. It was about about midnight, a little longer than I lay, a little later than I wanted to get back, but hit some traffic. So we spent about about four weeks out there, and um, if anybody's ever been out to that area, especially in the mountains, it's uh, it's real easy to sing of the goodness of God. It it is uh it's amazing and every time i go out there since um since i went out the first time after we were married um it it's very beautiful so some points of reflection that i that i have for you and i'm just going to lay these out and i'm going to give you guys a couple stories before we get started so some points of reflection are enjoy the time that we are given love those around us Understand when it's when our plan is against God's plan. And then just be aware of, of our own human short sightedness. So the the first story I have is, is kinda short. Uh when when we were packing up to go on our trip, uh I put a box together and I put a bunch of books in there and I loaded my backpack full of books and I'm like, I'm gonna study, right? I'm gonna I'm going to study, and I'm going to, um, and and it's not about just being in the Word, but I just want to dig in. I want to know the the cultural understanding. I want to dig into, um, to just what the Lord is saying, and so I, I packed all these books. And then when we got there, it's just something happened where I was just like, well, I'm here with my family, and you know, with my mother and father-in-law. And my brother-in-law and his, and his wife and kid, and the the time with them just meant more than being in the books, and uh, and it took me a second to kind of wrestle with that, but but I, the, the Lord was just telling me to cherish this time that I have with my family, and we we talked about it this morning a little bit, you know we could we could read the Bible every day and we can just be in the word and we can think that it's our reading that's giving us understanding that's drawing us closer to the lord but who who's actually doing the work are we doing the work or is the lord doing the work so even even sometimes the better thing to do is to just rest in him and and trust him for the for any good and perfect gift that we're given that that he's going to be the one that's giving it and no matter what we do in our own strength, we can't earn that. And then the, the other story I have is a little bit longer. I'm going to condense it a bit. But there's, there's so much spiritual understanding in here. Um, Diane and I endeavored to do a very long hiking trip. <laughs> it was between 22 and 24 miles. And we were going to do it in one day. And... Um, we had it all all mapped out. There were two ways, you know. It was a point to point, so we could start on one side or start on the other. And um, you know, through discussions with her, her dad, and you know what we talked about, we decided to start on one point and come back towards the the canyon. And it, it's very hard for me to describe the the topographical region that we're in. But it's just north of Yellowstone, and it's in the Rocky Mountains. Imagine, you guys know what a leaf looks like, right? Like the veins in a leaf, how the leaf has one main vein that goes through, and then the branches kind of stem off from that. The mountains are very similar. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that, but it's like there's veins of mountains, and then from these main veins, there's these little ridges that come off that feed these canyons. It's like all connected together. And so we're in the main canyon, and then there's a canyon just to the west. And so we went over to the west, and we were hiking up one of these 
valleys that go up through and we had to come up over a ridge and go back down and then come back over another ridge and come back down and then and work our way back into the the main canyon and so we we left not as early as I wanted but we got at about 9:30 and we we hiked up through and everything was good and then we encountered some areas where there was a lot of down trees so it was real real hard to get through our legs were all scratched up and we got up and the first the first climb was tough and then the we got over the first ridge and we came in and there's this beautiful area i mean beautiful beyond beautiful like no there's no signs of of humanity <laughs> i mean it's i mean we saw elk the you're walking through these fields and it's like the the tundra flowers and there's water flowing everywhere like who would know that there's so much water in the mountains but there is there's an amazing amount of water in the mountains and the snow melt and everything and we we get to the second climb and we're coming up to it and it do you guys know what a cirque is have you ever heard of that so it's basically where it the the veins attach to the main the main stem and it's just a wall like a circle have of of a wall of mountain and you look up at it and you're like we got to climb this <laughs> so we we climb up and it's tough it it took us a while and at that point we're about 16 and a half miles in and it was a little later than what than what we wanted i think it was i, I probably had my times wrong we'll have to discuss this later i think it's about 6:30 in the evening and um at that point we we told Dinah's dad that if we're not back by 10 that something's wrong so we have to get back down and we have to go and so we're up on top it's called the West Boulder Plateau it's over 10,000 feet 10,200 feet somewhere around in there and I mean you can just look around and and it's just waves of mountains it's like waves it's beautiful and we're following the trail and all of a sudden the trail turns into snow and it's snow at the point to where it drops off down into the other side i mean and it's a drop off and it's it it's not all snowed in but there's a big snowbank there and we can't get around it and so we're you know we start to like what are we going to do you know you start to ask questions and so i i decided to climb up a little bit and go around and see if we could work our way in and um we we climbed up a little higher we went around and there I found this one area is probably an animal trail or something like that that was going down and it was really steep you know they can climb in steeper areas than we can and so I try and climb in and it's it's steep and we're you know I I was a little worried about how steep it was especially with trying to get around and, and there was no way to get where we needed to go where there wasn't snow I mean and it was it was pretty steep if i if i could describe it to you it was it was really steep i was concerned about walking on the snow and slipping and and falling and at that point i made a decision and and i said is it what's the risk here is the risk are we more at risk trying to walk on this snow and get down and possibly injure ourselves 10 miles back into the wilderness i mean this is this is wilderness um or do we take the chance of going back and hiking in the dark and facing animals what what's the risk and believe it or not there's there's a lower risk of coming across an animal than i be, i believe than falling to your death <laughs> or injuring yourself badly in the snow and i made the decision diane and i have um had discussions about it and looking back I probably made the wrong decision but you know that wouldn't be new. <laughs> so we decided to turn back. And this is now we've we've spent more time up there and and there's an amazing story here. I'll, I'll tell you in a second part of this, but we we're going to hike back and at this point we have 16 and a half miles back to go mostly in the dark probably. Um and we're concerned about her family, you know, being worried about us. Now, I personally wasn't worried about us getting back. We we do long races, we're able to um to do that. We wouldn't go out like that if we weren't able to handle it. But but they're concerned about us. And so 
we, she, I was like, well, when we get up to the ridge, maybe there's, there's cell signal. So she turned, she had her phone on, she, it was on airplane mode, she put it back, and there was no signal. But as we climbed up to go around, to, to find the area to go around where it didn't work, when we got back up, all of a sudden she had one bar. And so she, she called, and a call didn't go through, and she sent a text, and the text didn't go through. And then a, she said a, a little thing popped up and says, do you want to resend? And she, and she prayed. She prayed. Yes, she prayed first. And then, and then sent the text. And amazingly, miraculously, it went through. We were in the, the middle of nowhere up on the top of a ridge. And, and the text went through. And we're like, did it go through? You know, did, did, he, did he really get it? She sent it to her dad about to meet us back to where we started. And so the whole time back, we're just, we're just, we'll just trust that it went through and that, he, and that he's there. And um, as we hike back down, uh, we, I had a flashlight. I, I'm always prepared when we go out on these long hikes. So I had a flashlight. I had uh, magnesium and a flint just in case needed to start a fire and, and you know, whatever and, and stay for the night. But I, I, in my mind, I'm like, well, okay, well, I have a flashlight. She's got her cell phone. We're just going to use the light as long as we can, and we'll just monitor it. And when we get to a point, if I need to, I'll stop and make a fire. No big deal. And um, it was crazy. I don't know if you guys have ever been out that up north or out west. But it stays light out really long. So you get ambient light till about 10 o'clock, 10.30, almost 11. Crazy. And then it starts getting light out again at like 4 in the morning. So, um, we hiked until about 10.30 without lights. And you could see the path, you can see where trees were cut. But it's amazing how when you're in the darkness, like how the song said, the darkest of night, how your eyes adjust to the darkness, how your, how your eyes can filter out that light and see even when things are, are really dark. So we got to a point and finally, you know, used the lights and um, we, we were able, we had to scare a moose off the trail at one point. <laughs> God, God really protected us. We, I, I was praying mostly the whole time, and it was, you know, it's crazy. You're flat, you're shining the lights around looking for eyes in the darkness because there's bears and there's mountain lions and, you know, whatever. Um, moose, deer, deer you're not worried about. But, um, but we made it back about a little after four in the morning. And um, it, it was a, it was a long experience, and I'm just very thankful that um, that the Lord protected us. And when we got back, the amazing thing was is that her dad was there waiting for us, and so we were able to get a ride back to the house. And they they were concerned, and we we were more concerned about them possibly being mad at us for you know for having to turn around, and you know. But he was he was very thankful that. Um, that we made a decision and the decision that we thought was wise and that we were able to get a hold of him and um, thankful to, just to, for, for our health and our safety. So that was a, that was a good experience and there's a lot in that. Um, before, we, before we jump into the word this morning, let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we thank you for all things. For all good and perfect gifts, Lord. For this life that you've given us. Not even this physical life, Lord, but this spiritual life that you've imparted to us through your Son, through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I just pray that that you would guide us and that you would teach us. Lord, that you would use the words that are spoken to give glory to your name or that you would receive all the glory and the power and the honor. And Father, we thank you again for everything that you're doing in our lives. And Lord, I just pray that that all those listening would, would come to, to know your sovereignty. And Lord, I, I humbly stand before you this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So I'm going to read the passage, if you guys wouldn't mind standing for the word. 
We're going to be in Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. Again, Luke 6, 6 through 11. We read, On another Sabbath, he, Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to draw from the parallel passages this morning, so if you'd like to mark these spots in your Bible to follow along, because they're not going to be on the screen, that uh, is Matthew 12, 9 through 14. Again, Matthew 12, 9 through 14, and Mark 3, 1 through 6. Um, these are the parallel passages, and they're going to add a lot to our time together this morning. So in all three gospel accounts, this passage is part of a series of events that happen on successive Sabbaths. Pastor White spoke about this a few weeks ago, about the the way that everything kind of fell in place for this, and so I'm not going to dive into some of the things that he spoke about. Uh, The miracles and teachings of Jesus had been heard of throughout Judea and Jerusalem, And previously we talked about uh, how a group of the Pharisees and the scribes had come from all over to listen to the teachings of Jesus and possibly just see if what he was teaching was accurate. And they heard about all of the miracles he was performing and his popularity was spreading. So they were here and they were trying to figure out who Jesus was and what's his plan. They were trying to figure out his end game, right? What's he getting at? Why why is he coming to prominence? Did he want their position? Did he want their power? Was he trying to create a rebellion against the established norm or the established political structure to supplant himself in a position of authority? So we're going to think about these questions as we go through the passage. So we're going to start by looking at the first two verses, Luke 6, 6 through 7. It reads, On another Sabbath, he, being Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. So they watched him to see if they could find a reason to accuse him. In Revelations 12.10, the enemy is called the accuser of the brethren. The, The accuser. So what does it mean when you bring accusations against someone? There's an element of judgment in there, right? Which we'll talk about. Now, Pastor White pointed out that Jesus did not break any of the established laws about working or healing on the Sabbath. And they knew he had the power to heal and that he had compassion for those who were sick and lame. This had been established, the healing. Now, in in Matthew 12, verse 10, we get a little added context to this Matthew 12:10 says and a man was there with a withered hand and they asked him they being the Pharisees is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him so in, in this verse we see that they are the ones who instigated the situation they are the ones who asked the question which he responded to 
So let's examine the situation a little closer. There happened to be a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath who was lame. And the Pharisees just happened to be there to point out this to Jesus and mention about the lawfulness of healing on the Sabbath. All these things just happened, right? Was this coincidence? No. It smells like a trap. They were trying to trap him. The Pharisees devised an ethical dilemma in which to ensnare Jesus. And this is a reoccurring theme, the idea of trying to trap Jesus in an ethical dilemma. You can read about it in John 8, Matthew 22, Mark 12, later in Luke 10, and the list goes on. So what makes this situation an ethical dilemma? We're going to examine a modern scenario to help us understand this. But first, I want to consider what's called the Hippocratic Oath. Have you guys ever heard of that before? So this is arguably the oldest medical oath who those who practice medicine have to swear by. The chief aim of the oath is to ensure that a doctor does no harm. Right? Do no harm. And it seems like a vague principle. But what's interesting about this principle is that it grows with the situation. Right? It, it implies some sort of decision that somebody's going to make. It doesn't tell you what you have to do in every single situation, but it gives an ethical principle to live by. And I call it a growing principle. And we're going to discuss this more later. So there's more modern oaths that doctors take in medical school that provide ethical standards, and they give more specific instruction. For instance, they say, to remember that warmth, sympathy, and understanding may outweigh the surgeon's knife or the chemist's drug. It says to call in a colleague when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. So you have to set your pride aside, and you have to ask for help. To remember that they do not treat a fever or a cancerous, cancerous growth, but a sick human being. And to prevent disease whenever possible. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell, and, and this is a, a fictitious, but it could happen, modern scenario of an ethical dilemma. A little different than the one we just read, but try and stay with me. So imagine a doctor that's on his or her day off and he or she is out to dinner with their parents. They're trying to enjoy this time together and they're sitting at a table having, having a meal. Then at the restaurant, at the table across the way, a person begins to choke. People start making a commotion Maybe uh, the person's friend or family member starts to cry out or scream, which the doctor sees. And then someone cries out, he's choking. Is there a doctor? Is there a doctor in the building? So the doctor's just trying to enjoy his or her time off with her parents, trying to not work. Right? This is their day off not getting paid for this. Yet they're the only one in the building possibly with the ability to help the choking man. Does the doctor have to save him? Then the doctor's father and mother say, aren't you going to help him? They know. He's got the ability to do it. So what's more important to the doctor's parents? The meal and the time together or the life of the man who is dying? This situation is not a trap, but the doctor still has to make a choice either to help the choking man or, or to let him die. We often refer to Jesus as the great physician. I spoke about this um, earlier. 
And here he's placed in a situation where the rules and traditions of the culture are in opposition to the value of a man's health and life. Of course, Jesus is the only one with the ability to heal the man. But should he go against the cultural and religious traditions and rules? What would his father say? Aren't you going to help the man? So, let's look at the next two passages. This is Luke 6, 8-9. It reads, But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? He knew their thoughts. I'm constantly astounded, just amazed, that our Lord and Savior, knowing the thoughts of men, remained humble to the will of the Father. Think about what he could have accomplished in worldly affairs. Right? Drop your net. Pulled up so much fish that it almost sank the boat. He knew everything. Any one of us, without the perfect character of God the Father, could not resist the temptation that Jesus faced. He knew the temptation and sin that we face daily and yet was able to live in his body and mind perfectly to the will of the Father. He came to establish a new covenant and a new Israel for all those who were born of the Spirit. He was the firstborn, and the saints are co-heirs with him in the kingdom of heaven. Without the Holy Spirit of God, we cannot live according to the commandments given by Jesus with a, with a pure heart, with a right heart. In the first century BC, among the Pharisees, there were two main schools of Jewish thought. There was the school of Hillel, and then there was the school of Shammai. These two schools had vigorous debates on matters of ritual practice and ritual purity, along with ethics and theology. The school of Hillel was more liberal in its interpretation, whereas the school of Shammai was more conservative. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The dispute between these two schools was so fierce that they say that the Torah became like two Torahs. So the law was interpreted in such a way that it was like two different laws. They had many areas of dispute, but some of the main areas were white lies, divorce, Hanukkah observance, and forgetting to say grace after meals. Another one which we're going to look at is who were those that were allowed to study the Torah? Shammai said that only the brightest were allowed to study, whereas Hillel said that the Torah may be taught to anyone. One of the most famous passages in the Talmud tells the story of three prospective converts to Judaism who approached both Shammai and Hillel. In all three cases, they are rejected by Shammai and accepted by Hillel. I'd like us to look more closely at the story of one of the prospective converts. In the Talmud, this is in Shabbat 31a, and the story goes that a Gentile man came to Shammai and said, I will only convert if you can teach me the whole Torah while I'm standing on one leg. Seems ridiculous, right? Somebody said, teach me the whole Bible, teach me the whole gospel while I stand on one leg. Otherwise, I don't want it. Be like, what is this guy talking about? Shammai would not convert him and push the Gentile man away with a stick used for measurement. It's uh, called a cubit. And the, the interpretation was that maybe he thought the man didn't measure up. The same Gentile man came to Hillel 
and said the same thing. I will only convert if you can teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one leg. Hillel converted the man and said to him, That which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the entire Torah, and the rest is interpretation. Now go study. This principle is similar to Jesus' commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And to truly love your neighbor as yourself, you must first love God with all your heart, with all that you are. And the principle given by Hillel is a learning principle, although Hillel expresses it in the negative form, similar to the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. Right? It grows with the situation. The problem is, is that this can only be done with a proper heart of love through the Holy Spirit. In John 4.24, Jesus says that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In John 16, Jesus says that he would send the Holy Spirit who would guide us in all truth. We need his spirit to teach us how to love God and love our neighbor. And this is a learning process and is closely tied to our sanctification which is how we work out our salvation. So some of the traps set by the teachers of the law centered around trying to make Jesus pick sides between the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. But he always picked the father's side. This was beyond their understanding because they lacked the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Jesus asked them in response to the situation that he was placed in, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Here Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter, knowing their understandings, knowing their hearts, interpretations of the Sabbath. What he was getting at is the value of life, the value of human life. In Matthew 12, 11 through 12, Jesus says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So he makes that distinction. It was accepted by the teachers of the law that if someone could save one of their animals or someone could save one of their animals if they had fallen into a pit on the Sabbath. Jesus saw all life as coming from God, and the man with the withered hand was one of God's people. The Pharisees had a distorted view on the value of human life. And I believe we're in a similar situation in our culture. There's a distorted view on the value of life. In Mark chapter 3, verse 4, at the end it says, after he makes the statement, it says, but they were silent, the Pharisees. They either couldn't or didn't respond. And this is another reoccurring theme, is that the teachers of the law, they cannot speak to the wisdom of Jesus. And we spoke about this in the, in the morning study about the, all the fear that they had, which was driving their motives and driving their hearts. They were, they were missing the right type of fear, which is the fear of the Lord. And we, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So there's no wisdom apart from that. Let's go to the last two verses. This is uh, Luke 6, 10 through 11. And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Since there was no response from the Pharisees and teachers, Jesus healed the man. It did take an act of obedience. The man believed Jesus, 
and did what he said. In Mark chapter 3, verse 5, we read, And he, being Jesus, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. So not only did he know their thoughts, but he looked around at each one of them. He gave them a chance to understand. The anger expressed by Jesus is righteous anger. This is different than our common expression of anger even at many of the injustices in the world. Righteous anger doesn't accuse. It promotes mercy and relies on God's perfect judgment. God's wrath is just as real as God's love. And Jesus has more to say on this later in Luke 6. So in this this verse from Mark, we read that Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart. There's a deep teaching here, and we'll try and dig down a bit. And I, I'm a work in progress, right? Anybody else here agree? Right? We're, we're all we're all a work in progress, and we can only we can only discern as much as the Lord gives us. Uh, we're not perfect. I'm not perfect, and this teaching that was given to me is so deep that when when you it's like when you step over the cliff and you look down right you can you can try and only go as far as the lord will allow you so this is ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27 again ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27 it reads And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Can someone really have a heart of stone physically? Can you live if your heart is is stone? What happens when your heart hardens up physically? That's it. But this is uh, not necessarily a physical teaching, is it? This is a spiritual teaching, and that's where it gets a little a little deep. What were the Ten Commandments written on? Stone. This is the physical understanding of God's righteousness and is what Israel was told to follow. However, the law written on stone doesn't bring righteousness but reveals our sin and brings wrath. You have to check these two verses out later. Both Hebrews 10 verse 16 and Jeremiah 31:33 both attest to the fact that God will put his perfect law which is spiritual in the hearts and minds of those who are in his kingdom and who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews says that this is the new covenant the writing of this perfect law of the word on our hearts and minds. What is necessary to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Pharisees were lacking? Again, what is necessary to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that the Pharisees were lacking? Belief that Jesus is the Messiah. And unfortunately, they were in a culture where they, it was very hard for them to understand 
Jesus as Messiah the way that we understand him as the Messiah, which is, again, we talked a little bit about that this morning. The fullness of this was, dis- was not disclosed at this point because Jesus had not yet suffered. Now, God spoke through the prophets, and many of, many of these things were revealed, and they were able to be understood. And there, there's a lot more to, to say on this. Um, I'm going to stop at this point, and I'm going to draw a parallel for us. Uh, when we go to Montana, we like to find petrified wood in the, in the river. The, it, it's really neat. Have you guys ever seen petrified wood before? Uh, I brought a piece. I'm going to show you guys. So this is a little piece. We have some larger ones. If you've never seen it, you can. I'll show it to you later. So petrified wood is wood that's been mineralized over a long period of time, and it turns into rock. It's a stone. It's heavy. looks like wood, but it's rock. And in Psalm 1, the, the blessed man is referred to as a tree, right? A tree planted by streams of water, which bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. What, were to, what would happen if the tree turned into stone? Would it grow? Could it bear fruit? No. Um, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here. <laughs> How many of you guys like trees? You, you love trees? I, I love trees. I just do. And God teaches us so much through his creation. So much. So much so that in Romans it says that we don't have any excuse not to know him. So, what are, what are some trees, right? So, I'll, I'll tell you some trees that I like and some reasons why some of the spiritual insight I've gained from trees, right? Spiritual insight from trees. And then maybe you guys can tell me some later. So, uh, one of my favorites living down here is the jacaranda. Do you guys know what a jacaranda is? Do you know when jacarandas shoot out those beautiful purple flowers? Anybody ever realized when? I, I've, I've shared this with a few people. Easter, just before Easter, I know as soon as the jacarandas shoot out these beautiful purple royal flowers, that Easter is right around the corner. Isn't that cool? What about oaks, especially live oaks? Live oaks are, are majestic. They're beautiful, right? Beautiful. But have you ever looked closely at the bark of a live oak? Is it, is it nice and smooth? No. What is it? It's rough, right? It's very rough around the edges. So if I'm able to love a tree that's rough around the edges, how much more should I love a person that's rough around the edges? Right? Cypress trees. Those little stumps that the cypress shoot up. What are those cypress knees? Right? What do the cypress knees do? What, what are they there for? You guys know? To trip you. (laughs) No. Although, some would probably agree. Do you know what they store? Water. They store water. So that if things dry up, they don't die. They're able to to store up. And, And I think of that for us, right? That we need to store up these, these good things and share in times of drought, right? These resources that, that God has given us that if we would just use it all up, right? If we just go and we use it all up all right away, is there going to be anything there in a time of, time of drought? No. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share Diana's. <laughs> when we go out to, to Montana, there's a tree called the aspen. Do you guys know what the aspen is? And... When, when the wind comes through, the leaves, they, they just flutter and they dance in the wind and they make the most beautiful sound. And, and she loves the way that, they, that the leaves dance in the wind, right? They're just, and, and often in, in Scripture, what, who is referred to as the wind? 
the spirit, right? And so as the spirit moves, they just dance and flutter and make a beautiful sound in the wind. So spiritual truths from trees. Crazy. So back to the text. Sorry about that. Jesus restored the man's hand. So the great physician is the only one who can heal the man. Modern medicine cannot do this. This makes sense because everything was created through Jesus. He knows the complexity of the human body and has power over it. So I ask you, what does it take to fix something? Anybody in here ever fixed anything? What do you need to know in order to fix something? You, you, how it works? YouTube. <laughs> you guys are full of jokes this morning. I like it. <laughs> what about how it's put together? Right? If you don't know how it's put together, you take it apart, you're going to be stuck. And I think we've, some of us have been there before. How about, how about vehicles? You guys work on vehicles? They're pretty complex, right? Are they as complex as the human body? Mm, not even close. So I had a, a really good experience when we were out in Montana um, watching Diana's dad, Carl Sr., and her brother Peter work on the, the family Jeep. And they had to replace the rear springs. And I, I've never done this before. I've done shocks and different things, but I've never replaced springs. And so I was listening to them talk and brainstorm about how to fix these springs. And it, it kind of took me by surprise because looking at the springs, Carl Sr. started asking questions. And these questions would have never, never come in my mind. right? Not even, not even close. So I was amazed. Like, how do you have the understanding to ask these questions. And it seems like such a simple question. He asked whether one side of the spring was longer than the other from center. Right? Is it longer on one side or the other? So that he knew when he took it out how to put it back in correctly. Had it been me working on the Jeep, that question would not have been asked. In fact, it may have been put in incorrectly. <laughs> and then taken out and put back in when I've realized the mistake I made. So in this situation, asking the right question was important. The question came from a deep knowledge of working on cars and knowing how they work. Do you think Jesus knows how we work? Does he have a deep knowledge of how we were designed? Did he ask the right question? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil? The Pharisees, filled with fury, began plotting once more on how to trap Jesus. In Mark 3, 6, it says that the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The Herodians were the politically elite family that were of the line of Herod. And in their minds, the, the Pharisees, Jesus was threatening their, their position, their political position. And we, th there's a lot in this, and I don't have time to, to go into this fully. But they not only plotted to destroy Jesus, but they did destroy him, at least his body. Did that kill him, though? No. This brings up a fascinating point. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. We see God's plan in this passage to restore health and life. We also see the Pharisees' plan to use someone's lack of health to try and destroy Jesus. Man was being used. God's plan requires peace and mercy and is led by the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees' plan requires judgment and accusation and is led by the enemy. Who did the Pharisees actually trap 
in this ethical dilemma. Did they trap Jesus? They trapped themselves. That's right. They condemned themselves for eternity if they did not repent of their sin and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Earlier in Luke, Jesus says that he requires mercy and not a sacrifice. And ask them to think about it. And this calls one to examine their motives if they thought about it, just like us. Jesus requires mercy and not a sacrifice. In this passage, we see a situation that has two sides. And any one of us could be on either side of the situation. When we're confronted with our own persecution of others, where we don't value life how we should, we have to make a choice. Do we confess and repent? Or do we harden our hearts and continue to rebel? When we're confronted with persecution from others, when we're being treated poorly, we have to make a choice. Do we love our enemies and pray for them? Or do we get angry and start to plot revenge? In reading about the trap set for Jesus and how he responded to liking it to the sheep caught in the pit, the Spirit prompted me, and I, I immediately thought of Joseph. The narrative of Joseph's life stretches from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50, and we're not going to cover it in great detail, but there are some interesting parallels, which I, I don't think I've fully covered in here, but it's something that the, that the Spirit prompted me, and I want to share it with you. Joseph was the son of Jacob, who's also known as Israel. Joseph Joseph was Israel's most beloved son and was given a coat of many colors. Joseph's brothers became envious and set a trap for him. Catching him in a pit, they would have killed him had it not been for Judah, who proposed to sell him into slavery instead. After arriving in Egypt, Joseph again fell victim to an evil scheme from Potiphar's wife and he found himself in prison. From prison, God blessed him to the point to where he was second in command to Pharaoh. He made sure that Egypt was prepared for the great famine that was prophesied through Pharaoh's dream. The famine drove Joseph's brothers and father to Egypt in search of food. And here Joseph was able to reunite with them and save his family. Like Joseph, Jesus is God's beloved son and was clothed in the Holy Spirit. The others in the nation of Israel were jealous of him, and they plotted to destroy him. As the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus was freed from the pit, the grave, even though his life was sold by Judas. He resurrected from the prison of death. The evil schemes of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were futile, and Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father and is making a place for the saints, the spiritual nation of Israel, those who are co-heirs with Christ. He is our salvation. When Jesus returns, the saints will be reunited with him in the clouds. Amen. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. This brings us to our three application points this afternoon. Restore life. We must be actively looking for ways to help others. And the Holy Spirit will guide us in this pursuit. We were created in Christ Jesus as new creations for good works, which God prepared in advance for us. These good works do not save us. They're the result of having the Holy Spirit. There's no way to do these good works, these works that are good in the Father's eyes without the help of the Spirit. Paul said this to the church in Philippi. This is Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Jesus was not swayed by helping others or from helping others by the cultural or the political climate. When we encounter those in need, do we use the resources God has given us to help them? I can't tell you how to do this. Only you know how God is working in you for his good pleasure. Which brings us to our second point. Examine motives. We cannot begin to know what others are thinking as Jesus did. But we can examine our own motives. We've all made our own plans at one point or another, and plans in themselves aren't necessarily bad. It's the motive of of our heart that's the issue. Do we seek the heart of God like David? Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of man, or in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Jesus had a pure heart in healing the man. There was no ill motive. But what about the Pharisee's heart? What turns a a heart into stone? I believe we could answer this question for a long time. One of the things I want to point out is what what I saw is a superior attitude. They saw themselves as, as better than the man who was who was lame. It's full of pride and it desires to devour those less worthy. But what is the what does the word of God say? The word of God calls us to humble ourselves and seek his face. In order to do that, we need to trust God. And that is the, the third application point this morning. Trust God. This requires us to let go of our own will and way. We shouldn't just trust Him when things are going well, but we should also trust Him during the storms and things are not going so well. We're told that He is the God of the mountains and the valleys. As much as we don't like to admit it, There's traps set for us by the enemy, by the forces of darkness. But what's the ultimate trap? I would say the ultimate trap is death. Thinking that after we die, it's all over, that death is the end. This is a lie. Death is not the end. We will each be given a new spiritually eternal body. Some for eternal life and some for eternal death. Jesus, again, Jesus is the firstborn of all who will inherit eternal life. I ask you this morning that if you've not chosen life, to trust God. Trust trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Fall on your knees and cry out for mercy. Pray to God, to fill you with his Holy Spirit and become a new creation that you may dwell in his presence forever. So we're going to listen to the words of Moses as he prepares the nation of Israel to enter the promised land. And this is what I'm going to leave you guys with this morning as uh, the worship team wants to come up. Now I want you to ponder how this can be applied to Jesus' spiritual teachings. This is a, a teaching given by Moses to those who never met Jesus. This is Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 20. Moses says, See, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, 
I declare, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.